0: My name is Vicki. Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. When I was younger, um, I was fascinated with Greek mythology. And every single book that I could find to read on Greek mythology, I would read it. And they didn't have like Percy Jackson, you know, like back then. But if they had it, I would have read it all up. Like I would have watched all the movies and all of that. Um, now. The gods of Mount Olympus, I don't know how familiar you guys are <laughs> with Greek mythology, but um, you know, I would be fascinated by these gods of Mount Olympus, who are like Lord of all these different categories, right? Like you've got Poseidon, Lord of the Seas and oceans, and you've got you know Apollo, the god of the Sea, Aphrodite, goddess of love, Athena, right? Like all these different gods. and they had all this incredible power. To um, bring favor or to, t- or, or to change what was going on with the circumstances of the world. And these gods um, were not just like ready to bestow favor upon anybody. They were jealous and they were fickle. And they had all these rivalries with their siblings, right? So then you would hear about all these times where they would... Um, use mortals to be cogs in the wheel to show and one up their sibling, you know, like that they would have all these battles with one another. And even though the mortals would go and worship the gods and go to their altars and and give sacrifices, you could only hope that the god or goddess would give you favor and that that favor would not, you would know that that favor would not last, right? Um, they were they were gods that believed in a clear separation between themselves who lived on Mount Olympus with all this power and that there would be separation between them and the mortals because they saw that the mortals were depraved and unsophisticated and they didn't live forever. So what was the point in lavishing them in beauty and life and goodness? And so they always wanted this separation. And one of the stories I always think of is the story of Prometheus. Now Prometheus, who's over here on the side, right? And then here are all the gods. Um, He was actually a god who had compassion on the humans. And he looked at them. He thought, man, they don't have anything. They're in the midst of suffering. They're in the midst of their depravity and their brokenness. And here, as gods, we have everything at our fingertips, living in luxury and goodness and wealth and so he decided to steal fire from Mount Olympus and bring it to man so that he could give them light to help them rise up from their suffering. But Zeus found out and he was really angry with Prometheus. said, so how dare you take what is ours and give it to the mortals? They do not deserve anything good from us. Right. And so because he breached the gap between the gods and the mortals, he was eternally punished. He was tied to a rock, chained to a rock. And every morning he, Zeus would send his eagles to come and eat Prometheus liver. And every night because Prometheus was immortal, he would grow a new liver, but only to know that in the morning it would be eaten and he would be attacked again by eagles. And that was his eternal punishment um, for for having compassion on the mortals and wanting something good for them. Now, the reason why I tell this, and I realize it's a little gruesome. You see the eagle right there, and he's like, "Oh, you know. Um, The reason I share that this morning is that this is the worldview of the Greek and Roman world. And when we read about these um, churches, these um, young churches in the epistles, right, Colossae or in Thessalonica or in Philippi and you wonder like what is their worldview of gods? What is their understanding of how gods work? Greek, we call it mythology now, this is what they understood of gods, that they were jealous and fickle, that they could give you favor if they wanted to but could very easily take it away, that they really didn't want anything to do with mortals but to use them, right? And so when we read about these early churches struggling with the gospel of Jesus Christ, who would give himself up to breach the gap between man and God, that they didn't have to do anything to receive the love of God and the favor of God, it boggled their mind. It went against everything that they knew and believed about themselves and about everything that they believed about God, big G or little g, right? now we are in the book of colossians and paul is writing to the colossian church to encourage them and remind them of the goodness of god and the singular gospel that jesus is the one that is worthy of our worship right? This is in the time where there was polytheism, like a worship of many gods, and there was legalism in their day, right? That you had to work and earn your salvation, work and earn the love that God wants to give you, right? And so Paul is continuously saying, no, 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 there is just the gospel, and the gospel does not include polytheism and legalism. Do not let those things creep in. And so this morning, I want us to look at Colossians one fifteen to twenty three. I'm gonna look at the NIV version this morning. I'm just gonna read this for us, and if you have Bibles, feel free to join me, um, or you can just go ahead and look on the screen behind me. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Verse 21 Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The repeating theme here is that there's this God of all gods, supreme over all these selfish and fickle gods. Jesus is above all things, all time, space, right? Paul writes this poem, this hymn, which is gonna be referred to again and again in the book of Colossians. To the Greeks' worldview of gods, their limited power, their rivalries, this is the response, Jesus is supreme over all. Jesus is supreme over those gods, and he is pleased to use all his power and all his authority to bring reconciliation to all things. He does not want to stay in heaven, pristine and holy and separated from us. He wants to take all that fullness and all that power and breach the gap by sending Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, that he would send Jesus to become immortal himself, to become, you know, in a place of depravity and brokenness and suffering, so that he may come and save us. He is the good news. And I don't know about you, but this picture is Jesus being vast and mysterious, right? He's above all things, he is before all things, right in him all things hold together Um, it's this picture of grandeur and majesty he is mysterious right but there is something that he is not mysterious about how he feels about us and where he stands with us with prometheus it was a lesson to mankind that we do not deserve good things from the gods and they are meant to be separate from us them and their benefits right That was a worldview on a powerful God and what humans and mortals were to expect of him. How different then would this picture of God be for the Colossians, right? What good news that this God who is all powerful, more powerful than all the Greek gods combined would find pleasure in binding himself to us. Not merely out of wrath, but to give us his inheritance right? This is a foreign and puzzling concept for them. And I can understand why they would feel like, "Uh, that doesn't feel enough. That doesn't feel like it's true, right? Like I feel like maybe I need to work for some of that. I feel like I need to sacrifice myself and earn it a little bit because this feels really foreign to me. Or I feel like maybe Jesus, that sounds like really good news, but I need to worship the other gods to cover my basis because what if that doesn't work out? Right. So you can understand how polytheism and legalism can sneak in in the midst of that because of the worldview of God's. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm like, it's so vast and majestic. I can't wrap my head around it. Right. In my practical, logical, detail oriented personality, I have a hard time grasping big picture things. Right. The majesty of God. But I don't know about you, there are moments sometimes when it surprises me and I capture maybe even an essence of the power and the awe of God, right? Perhaps it is when I am sitting in nature and I see this vista before me and I imagine, wow, like what must God have imagined when he created this? This beauty, this vastness, right? That it would echo his majesty Or maybe you would have an encounter with creation, something that, you know, like maybe you're snorkeling or you're seeing an animal in his element and you're like, how incredible, right? Like that God would create like a panda, right? Like how incredible that God would create like these incredible gray whales and and dolphins are able to communicate with one another, right? Like how amazing our God must be that he could create creatures like this or maybe you have just you know learned something new right like gained some new sense of information that made you be in awe or wonder of god there is a universe out there that we know so little about and when i watch documentaries or just even learn a little bit about the deep sea most of it is undiscovered by man right there is so much mystery in that We don't have to be afraid of what we don't know. In fact, every new discovery is a welcome encounter with awe of the greatness of God. I've been looking at these images from the James Webb Telescope. I don't know if you guys have been looking at some of these images, and it is incredible. The most powerful instrument that we have to be able to explore things that we have never had access to explore before. And these images, I don't know, it just causes me to, Worship, right? It causes me to be in awe, right? And wonder, man, what, what, maybe there are things about God that I don't know, but how vast and how majestic he must be, right? That in the midst of my everyday stuff, that there is a God who is bigger than all of that. So just this morning, I want us to sit in the vastness of God for just a moment. I think it is like i said difficult to do that when i'm just wrapped up in the everyday details of my life and so this morning i just want us to just have some images to remind us of the majesty and the vastness of god and his creation and i'm also just going to be reading over us the hymn of um, colossians 1 um, through the message okay so am i okay standing right Um, yeah okay We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything God started in Him and finds its purpose in Him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. We could just sit (laughs) all morning, right? This is just a tiny snapshot of his creation. We can see the vast landscapes, images of stars and planets in the universe, right? That Paul says, this is our God. This is who he is. He is supreme above all things. He was there in the very beginning and he will be there in the very end. He's above all things and he's below all things. He surrounds us all, right? And with all that power, what does he desire to do? He desires to send his son on the cross, right? It is with that majesty of all time and space at God's hand where he holds it all in balance up to this moment. And it is his pleasure that comes and becomes a very personal and relational God as Jesus on the cross. And I think some of us are used to holding Jesus as a very personal, relational God, right? Jesus on the cross. And then there's those of us who believe Jesus to be this big, vast, mysterious figure, right? But here in in Paul's passage, in his hymn, he says, yeah, Jesus is big and vast above all things. He's mysterious. And also, he is this God who is relational and close to you. He is both these things. These are the same God. And when, when he comes, he brings reconciliation. And I just, you know, how do we understand reconciliation? I love, I love it in um, the message when he says, we were created for vibrant harmony. That we are created to long for things to be right right? We long for things to be made right. We are not made as people to like, love the tension, right? right? Like where, you know, you could enter into a room and if you have some like tension with someone, whether or not you know what it is or you don't know what it is, and that might be worse. If you have no idea what the tension is coming from or you do, and you're like, I'm in the same room with this person. And we're just feeling this awkwardness together and everything in me wants to just leave the room. Right, like we are created for vibrant harmony in our relationships with our friends, our parents, our kids, our siblings, our co-workers, right? We don't want to just get by with friendly detachment, afraid to get into it and be vulnerable. We want vibrant, active harmony. We want to be understood. We want to be loved for who we are. We want to be forgiven for the ways we fail. We do not want to be defined by our worst moments. So what does reconciliation mean? What goes on for us when we're mad at someone and we have issues with them, but we're like, you know what? They should know. <laughs> right? like, they should know what they did. And if they did, then they should come and apologize and make it right. Or that there is just a weirdness that can't be just solved or healed by more conversation. right? We want completion. I don't even like when a book or movie ends in a cliffhanger. Right? Like the question of like, I wonder what happens next. Like that holds no appeal for me. Right, Like I want it wrapped up. You know, I want a a nice conclusion. And perhaps when I say this, you are thinking of a relationship where you're not experiencing vibrant harmony, where you're like, we're just getting by and there are things that are unsaid. Maybe it is something in the past, maybe it's something that's current, right? But we are not in vibrant harmony with one another. You're sensing that tension. And maybe you think it's easier to just cut that person out of your life. Or maybe it would be easier when you move out of the house and you don't have daily interaction with that person anymore, with that parent or that sibling. It would be so much easier, right? You might not speak of that tension, but you both feel the awkwardness. You want to bring repair? But you aren't on the same page, and you wonder what that other person really thinks of you, and what will come out if you actually end up having a real conversation about it. Now imagine that in a cosmic big sense. Right? What does God think of me? Will he stand on my side, or will he be mad at me forever until I prove to him that I'm trustworthy? Will he ignore me, or will he look at me and delight in me? Will he hold my hand or will he walk away?" In um, the message in verse 21 to 23, it says this, You yourselves are a case study of what he does. At one time, you all had your backs turned to God, thinking rebellious thoughts of him, giving him trouble every chance you got. But now, by giving himself completely at the cross, actually dying for you, Christ brought you over to God's side and put your lives together, whole and holy in his presence. You don't walk away from a gift like that. You stand grounded and steady in that bond of trust, constantly tuned in to the message, careful not to be distracted or diverted. There is no other message, just this one. Every creature under heaven gets this same message. I Paul am a messenger of this message. There is, for this early church, this impossible understanding that God would want to link himself with mortals, right? And that that is, that is what they can trust of God. And yet, what God longs to do is to be reconciled to his love and to his creation, right? To know that we are known and cherished and loved by a father who constantly is chasing after us. Now, I am a parent, right? A lot of us are parents in here, but all of us are kids, right? All of us have parents. Um, And we can understand the tension of being a kid and being a parent, right? Um, The hardest lesson for me lately in parenting has been this, the tension between teaching my kids to do the right thing or to have them feel like I'm on their side teaching them to do the right thing or to have them feel like I'm on their side. And for those of you experienced parents who have this finesse, you can do both. I am not that parent. I find that I have to choose one or the other and I have a hard time standing in both those camps. And I can tell you that my tendency is to make sure that my kids know what is the right thing to do, Um, how they should have done better, how they needed to be more empathetic, how they should have controlled themselves better, how they shouldn't have set themselves up that the other person kicked them in the first place. Because what did you do to get that kick, right? I don't want to blindly stand in their corner and say, I'm just on your side, right? But I want to see them as they are, to love them as they are, and to know that there are lessons. We can all do better. But also, man, it's so hard to be a kid or teenager these days. Right? It's so hard to be going into the front lines, just trying to stand up for yourself and for other people and to do the right thing. It is so hard doing what you can and feel so vulnerable and exposed. It is hard being a kid. It is hard being a teenager, especially those kids where like your teeth are falling out. <laughs> right? Like you don't know what's happening to your body. Things are changing all the time. Right? Like your brain is not fully developed to actually have the self control that you're expecting of me. Right? And the world, whenever we look around, is a mess. It is hard being a kid or a teenager. Right? And I have my kid say, Why did you stand up for me and defend me when he kicked me? And I was like, <laughs> And I'm like, Because you kind of deserve that kick. Right? Like, and, And yes, that is true, right? It is true. But also, what I hear in that is why are you not standing on my side? Why do you not see that I did not deserve that kick? Why do you not yell at my brother for kicking me? Right? And it is hard to stand on both the sides, right? Like, and to say, I see that that was not the right thing. And that must have sucked for you. And then know when. To bring up the lessons, right? And know that probably most of the time they knew that what they did was wrong to begin with. I know that that's what I want. I don't need the constant nagging of my parents to say, like, yeah, I know you would have said something different, right? (laughs) Like, I know you would have raised my kids differently, or I know that you would have dealt with this situation differently. Don't nag me, trust me, right? And I know that with kids, you know like I've heard them say, "I wish my parents would just be happy with me. That what I do is enough." And our kids are looking around saying like, "Well, I'm not like them." Do you see what they're doing? I'm not doing that. Right? Like, "I'm good. I listen to you. I keep your curfew. I go to class. I'm I'm a good person." Right? Am I is that not enough? Is that not enough for you? Why don't you trust me? Right? I come home when you want me to. Why can't you trust me? Why can't this be enough? I don't want to be micromanaged. I want more freedom. You don't think your parents get you. They don't see you for who you are. They don't give you the space to evolve into the person that you are becoming. Right? And as parents, we don't know what we're doing. We are terrified that we're going to screw you up. We want the best for you. And we worry that you will get lost on the way if there is too much freedom. Some of our lectures and and nagging is, at least for me, I admit, fueled by my own anxiety and fear. But most of it is out of love for you. Why can't we be on the same page? Why can't you trust me? We, it doesn't matter if you are 10 or 40, we are still wrestling with that with our parents. We're still wrestling with that with our relationships with other people. Why can't you trust me that my intention for you is good? Why can't you trust me that, that my failures don't define 100% of who I am? Is there space for me to fail? Is there space for me to figure it out? Right. And that goes on all fronts, not just like the kids end, but it's like, oh, man, like, can my kids just cut me some slack here? I'm doing my best, you know. And that's what it looks like to be intention. That's what it looks like to be unreconciled. Right. That's what it looks like to feel like (sighs) I want vibrant harmony. And that is not the reality in my life right now. Broken. Right. I wonder what reconciliation might look like when we are complete and whole when we don't need the other person to say yeah you're enough even if my kid is screaming at me (laughs) but i know that jesus is reconciled with me and he says man you're worthy of love and i see you and i'm standing on your side i wonder if reconciliation would look different That we wouldn't bring all of our baggage to the table as well that we wouldn't need i wouldn't need my mom and dad to say yeah you're doing good like i'm sorry you know that 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 i would know from jesus that yeah like i know who i am and i have my identity in him and i'm secure in that so i don't need you to fix this right like i want to bring reconciliation i want to bring vibrant harmony but I'm not going to bring all that baggage with it right I wonder if we allow the gospel to be at the center and Jesus to be supreme how we might be able to live in vibrant harmony in a new way now this morning there's there's a lot of things that I could say of like this is how we can apply this word right Paul says to them, don't lose sight of the gospel, right? The good news is just this, that Jesus stands on your side. And in all his power and all his authority and all his vastness, he says, I want to be with you. And it is not out of obligation that he says that because he's like, well, I created you so someone should stand by you. It is because out of his pleasure and out of his desire for you, he's like, Man, I want to hang out with you. And I want to stand with you because I really like you. And not only that, I don't just want to give you fire. I don't want to just give you light. I want to give you all of my kingdom. I want you to inherit all this beauty and all this vastness and all this authority. I want to give it to you because you, I call my sons and daughters. That is the good news. Don't taint it with anything else. Well, what do you have to do, right? Just accept it, right? Do I have to serve more? Do I have to show up to more things? Do I have to, you know? No, right? And the world says, well, let's cover your bases. But who's going to take care of you when you retire, you know? Who's going to make sure that you're covered? Where are you going to find your security? Where are you going to find your comfort, right? And the world says, there are other gods that you need to bow down to, to make sure that you're taken care of, to make sure that you're okay. And what Jesus is saying, don't taint the gospel by worshiping other gods. I am going to take care of you. I am good, and I am on your side. And so this morning, that is the invitation. It is the welcome and the truth that we get to soak and sit in. It would be crazy for me to say, and here are the three things we should do because (laughs) of that, right? (laughs) There is nothing. All we get to do is say, I'm loved by God. And that is enough. And that is enough for today. Perhaps there is one thing. There might be someone that you're called to reconcile with today, things that you have wished for with vibrant harmony that you have decided it's too complicated. I just don't think I have it in me to bring it and perhaps Jesus is saying as I have reconciled with you and as you are filled with me perhaps you don't need that person to say this or that or the other and that you can just bring reconciliation and vibrant harmony without needing something from the other person and perhaps that is the one thing that I would say that I felt really convicted by this week right is I'm enough, Jesus says that, and he loves me. And so I don't need the other person to say anything. Let me pray for us, and then we're gonna um, create space at the table. Father God, we thank you that you, in all your power and all your grandeur and all your majesty, you've come to stand with us in our brokenness and our depravity and you say, I am claiming you as mine. I will save you, and I will restore you, and all that is around you. God, we need so much restoration. We need restoration in ourselves, and the tension we feel in ourselves, in our relationships, and our broken relationships with one another, in creation, and in our world. God, man, we need your vibrant harmony. I long for it, God, would you restore us, would you rebuild us as your people, confident in your gospel, confident in our belovedness. Pray this in your name. Amen.